today we are going to uh, start with the 15th Psalm. This is a Psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out of his uh, out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall not be moved. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the instruction you give us in it and the life applications that we can find throughout the Psalms telling us what you do and don't approve of. And uh, we thank you for those things. And uh, we thank you for what a beautiful morning we have today. Uh, we've had rain almost consistently for three months every single day. And today it's cooler, it's breezy, it's beautiful. And we thank you for that. And uh, of course, you know uh, what we discussed before we got started this morning, the people that are sick, the people that are traveling, the people that have uh, problems at their homes, all of them who couldn't make it this morning. And we pray for them. And we pray that you will be with them and help them through whatever it is their situation. And uh, thank you for each person that's here. And I would pray that they would see something today which uh, truly is our great hope in the verses we're going to look at and that they will appreciate your word even more today than they did the day before and that they will want to pursue reading it knowing it all the days of their life it is the superior word lord we thank you for it we thank you for our lord and savior jesus christ and uh, uh the marvelous work he did on our behalf which we we just it's just wonderful what he did for us and we thank you for it it's something we could never repay you for but by faith we accept it and so all hail the name of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I just want to give a real quick update on the uh, building. Uh, gosh, so much has gotten done in the past week that I was actually blinking my eyes after months and months of just one delay after another. We still have a delay getting the power hooked up again. FBL has not been real responsive again, but it hasn't harmed anything because we can you know, hook up a generator and all of the drywall went up. And, uh, you know, just all kinds of little things got done, which was so pleasing to see. And uh, at the rate we're going, it should not be long. I keep, you know, saying it's going to be this long and it's not. So I'm not going to give any guesses to when it'll be done. But uh, every time you go there, if you stop by, you will see progress now. And there's usually somebody in there so you can walk through and take a look at it, whatever. But I just want to let you know that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And um, today is our 87th Genesis sermon. This is uh, something that I think is just astonishing in what it teaches us, just as all of the pictures have been. Every time we get to a new one, I think, gosh, this is just unbelievable. And then another one comes and it shows me that it, it, God has just got more, more in store for us each time. It's, it, it's wonderful. But uh, it'll be uh, Genesis 35 verses 1 through 8, and it's entitled Arise, Go Up to Bethel. And uh, before we get into that and into the other things that we do each day, each Sunday, uh, I want to go ahead and read you one more psalm, a, a short psalm. This is the 16th psalm. This is a michtam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to, me, to the Lord, you are my God. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thank you, David, for those wonderful words. Anyway, um, uh, today is 8 September, or yes, 8 September, and uh, I don't know if I announced this on the, uh, the video after starting the video or not, but I was sick last night, and uh, so I, I'm a little off my game, and I apologize for that, and I may have said it already, and that would show you that uh, I feel that way, but uh, I hope you'll all bear with me, 
And uh, we'll do this day in history real quick. Just a few things happened. And uh, this is 8th September on this day in 1565. A Spanish expedition established the first European settlement in North America. Anybody know where that is? No? Jacksonville? Almost. Very close. St. Augustine. Thank you. That's right. The first. That's, uh, I, and I know you meant that. I know you did. But uh, that was our first uh, European settlement, and it's still there today. And believe it or not, it's 498 years old today, I believe. I, I think that's what I read. It might be 448, but I think it's 498 years. Oh, 1565, so it would be 448 years old today. Um, 1664, uh, the Dutch surrendered New Amsterdam to the British. The British renamed it New York. Very good. All right. 1892, an early version of the Pledge of Allegiance appeared in the Youth's Companion. Now, today I can see there being no such thing as a Youth's Companion, and uh, if the Pledge of Allegiance was submitted for uh, approval by our Congress, it would be shot down because of uh, one nation under God. But because it's there, we're clinging on to that, the last vestiges of uh, a moral society. But uh, that was uh, 1892. And then in 1945, a lady named Bess Meyerson of New York did something. Does anybody know who Bess Meyerson is? Miss America. Miss America. And she was, believe it or not, and I don't like to do this kind of stuff, but there were so few things on this day in history that I included it. She was the first Jewish contestant to uh, win this title. So uh, kind of great stuff there. Uh, congratulations to Bess Meyerson. And uh, my thought on that immediately was, because I wanted to see what she looked like, and she was, she was lovely. And uh, my thought was that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And I know if she uh, won that in 1945 that she is not the beauty she once was. And uh, the point being that we put our hopes and our adoration in things that do very quickly fade away. And uh, that's one of them right there. But hats off to Bess Meyerson for her accomplishment back in 1945. Um, 1952 on this day, Hemingway's novel, The Old Man, in the Sea was published. Great stuff there. And uh, if you know Ernest Hemingway, he uh, uh, wrote Like the Sun Also Rises, which is a, uh, a verse that comes out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, uh, he was a guy that struggled with life and eventually he ended up taking his own life. And I believe that if he had his faith and foundation in this book, that would have turned out differently. But uh, he was a great novelist and uh, that was uh, 1952, The Old Man in the Sea. 1966, NBC TV aired the very first episode of Star Trek, which is something that I, I grew up with. I loved it. And uh, I, probably nobody here knows the first episode. Um, there was a pilot which didn't include Captain Kurt, but uh, the first actual episode was called The Man Trap. And uh, what it was is this really hideous-looking being that... Uh, could convert into a human shape and she was this pretty lady but uh, uh, when she was her monster self she'd put her hands on people and suck all of the salt out of their body and uh, so it was just kind of one of those things but I really enjoyed Star Trek it was one of those things that was uh, uh, nothing profane nothing perverse it was just you know imagination running wild in the uh, the cosmos but uh, the show was canceled almost a year or three years later on uh, September 2nd of 1969 and then finally, in uh, 1974, President Ford granted unconditional pardon to Nixon, Richard Milhouse Nixon. And uh, uh, as you know, Nixon did some things he really should not have done. He brought, brought a lot of disgrace on the Republican Party, and it cost uh, uh, America in more ways than just the immediate. And um, uh, the thing about this in particular with me is it got me thinking about um, – uh, our unconditional pardon is that we uh, are human beings and we are born condemned. We're born into Adam's sin and uh, Christ came to redeem us from that and to pay our penalty. And a pardon is issued for every human being on the planet. Everybody is given a pardon. But something about the pardon, I think it was Andrew Jackson, uh, Andrew Jackson issued a pardon to somebody and the guy didn't want it. And they said, well, you have to accept it. He's pardoned you. And it went actually to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And the Supreme Court said, no, this pardon will remain in effect as long as this man lives. But unless he accepts it, it does not take effect. 
And that's a very good example of what happens to us in Jesus Christ. We are given a pardon in Jesus Christ, and it is until our last breath. But if we don't claim that pardon and call on him as Lord, then the pardon is canceled. And uh, that's just the way it is. People don't want to hear that in today's pluralistic and relativistic society. But uh, uh, we can see a little shadowing of that in our, the, the government that we live under. Something that most governments don't have is this pardon. For anything you've done wrong, it's wiped off your slate forever. And it kind of helps us to understand the nature of grace because Nixon didn't, uh, he didn't uh, in any way deserve that and he got it. And uh, none of us deserve what Jesus has offered, but we can accept it. And if we do, then we're pardoned for all of eternity. It can never be revoked. So uh, great stuff from a glorious God. We'll go ahead and read our uh, verses today and uh, then we'll talk about them. And uh, I hope that you'll hear something that blesses you. That's all I can say because this is just wonderful, wonderful stuff. This is uh, Genesis 35 verses 1 through 8. Uh, then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Lutz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alan Bahuth. Today's sermon, I want you to know, actually got started about six months ago. I normally type my sermons about five to six weeks in advance, and then I let them sit for a while, and then I look them over the week before I give them. But this one got started about six months ago, and the reason why is because my friend Sergio, who used to attend here at Church on the Beach, and then he moved to Atlanta, and then he moved to uh, Israel, and just this week he moved back to America, and he's living over in Fort Lauderdale. He uh, had some questions about this particular passage. It was a part of his daily reading, and so we talked about it as we often do. He either calls me, or maybe we get on FaceTime together or something, and we talk face-to-face, -face, or he'll send me an email. And uh, we came to some conclusions about the passage working together, and then afterward he went and looked into it a little bit more, and I did as well. And he sent me his email on his thoughts, and I saved those until I did this sermon. And so you can see why it started six months ago. But here is the opening greeting in the email that Sergio uh, gave me, and it reflects the kind of person that he is. He said, Charlie, today's conversation was probably the best conversation I ever had, simply because we were working together towards solving a question in the Bible. And as I do, I like to break things down into uh, uh, little sections to help me think through what somebody's trying to say. And the first thing that caught my mind was that he said that our conversation was the best that he ever had. And so that excludes every conversation he's ever had with his wife, Rhoda. And it excludes all of the conversations with his brother, Alex, and his parents. And so uh, I felt pretty honored by that. And when Rhoda sees this uh, on YouTube, I'm sure she's going to give him a knock on the head. But anyway, that's, that's my little uh, take out of there. But then... From there, he said the reason why it was such a great conversation. And the first reason was because he said we were working together. And as I was thinking about that, immediately the 133rd Psalm came to mind. It's uh, a Psalm that I love to quote, and uh, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. And uh, the dwelling together is actually sitting together. And we may not have been sitting together physically, but we were sitting together in uh, uh, in, you know, in person, on FaceTime, and, and we were working out this thing together. And that is what the heart of doing something for Christ is. Not doing it alone, but doing it in fellowship with other people. And then the second thing he says was that it wasn't just working together, but it was towards solving a problem. And uh, it, once again, another verse came immediately to mind, and that was from uh, 1 Kings chapter 10. It says, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. 
So Sheba went there specifically because of the name of the Lord. And uh, uh, she tested him with hard questions. And I can imagine, he's the wisest man that ever lived, that uh, she asked him questions about the nature of God, about, you know, what's the nature of man? How do we get here? What is our end? All of these things. And she probably asked him all kinds of questions about life in Israel as well. But Solomon answered all of her hard questions. And that's what we were doing. We were working together towards solving a question. But to me, the most important part of what Sergio says was that it was in the Bible. And you can solve all the questions of philosophy in the world. You can solve all the questions of logic and all the questions of science. But if they are not somehow tied into with, with, tied in with what God is doing in the world and in logic and in reason and all of these things, then it's really pointless. Atheists have a lot of knowledge, but if it's not tied in with something eternal, it's just temporary and it's going to pass away. The Bible says to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's from uh, the book of Colossians chapter 3. And so this is what Sergio was so content with, was these precepts. First, that he had the best conversation he ever had, and it was with me, and I'm kidding about that. But uh, actually it was that we were working together towards solving a question in the Bible. And that is very, very meaningful to me that he wrote those words to me. And as you can see, I pondered him a lot because it's something that maybe we all can do as we pursue God and read his word. Now he, Sergio continued in his email, he said, I'm excited to write down these thoughts. And then he wrote them down and they've been incorporated into this sermon in a large part. And when I get to one of those parts, I'll let you know that this is where Sergio and I talked. Now when Sergio studies and reads the Bible, he will write down questions. He does it all the time and he emails them to me just like you know a firestorm sometimes. But what he does is he writes them down and then he purposes in himself to go and find an answer to those questions. And sometimes he can't and sometimes we talk together, whatever. And I do the same thing. You know, I email him. I need to know something about the Hebrew, which is something I'm lacking at and he's proficient at. But this is what all of us should do when we read the Bible. We learn a lot more by teaching than we do sitting in a class listening. And the reason why is because when you're teaching, the students ask questions. And those questions prompt you to think quickly and to, you know, more than anything, probably to not look stupid in front of your students. So you think through very quickly what's going on and you come to resolutions in that manner. And so this is what I do as I'm typing sermons or when I'm getting ready for a Bible study. I will ask, why, Lord? Why is this here? And I'm not trying to be the Lord, but trying to answer my own question. What is it here for? I'm acting as my own student and my own teacher at the same time in order to come to resolutions. And I got to tell you, sometimes they don't come. I can go to bed and I can lay in bed all night long thinking about one passage from a Bible that's going to be a part of a sermon. And six o'clock in the morning, I get up and there's the answer. The Lord is so good to give you those moments of intuition. But this is exactly what I would ask each of you to do is to study the Bible, asking questions and looking for answers. And if you can't find them, then go do research somewhere else. Try to find those answers because this is what we have from God to lead us in our life. Now I'm gonna give you an example of one of Sergio's questions that he gave from these eight verses, all right? Here's what he says. He said, the word used in Hebrew for terebinth tree in verse four is not the same as in verse eight. In verse four, it says terebinth tree in the female form. In verse eight, terebinth tree is in the male form. Interesting, why is this so? And why are these two mentioned? So he's asking questions of the text as he's going along. And I got to tell you what, I thought about it, I thought that's really interesting. And I did a study. I could not find an answer to this particular question. I, uh, uh, you know, thought maybe the, the Garden of Eden and the two trees there, or, you know, I, I, I could not find a resolution to it. But it doesn't mean that the, the time was wasted. Nothing is ever wasted when we ask questions of the Bible and when we ask questions of the Lord also. And so this is what I recommend to each of you as you read your Bible. And notice that I just said, as you read your Bible, not if you read your Bible. And that points particularly to the young boy sitting over there. I want him to pick up his Bible and to read it every single day. My son just walked up, that's why I'm picking on him. But uh, uh, I, I would say that you need to read your Bible. And in order to know it, that's the only way it's gonna happen. It's not gonna, if you sleep on it, it's not gonna go into you through osmosis. So please read your Bible. Our text verse for today comes from the 122nd Psalm. This is gonna re relate directly to the first verse we're gonna look at. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. 
Jacob is going to Bethel, the house of God in today's verses. Everything that we have seen thus far in Jacob's life has been directed to this picture of the work of God in Christ. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I got three thoughts for you today. The first one is go up to the house of God. Verse one, then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Then God said, those words which open this chapter tell us that it is following chronologically after the incident of chapter 34, where Jacob's sons killed all of the people of Shechem because Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah. After they did that, they killed all the males and then they took the females and all of the plunder captive. This is God directing Jacob specifically. The last time that we saw this actually occur was way back in Genesis chapter 31. That was six or seven years earlier when he was still up in Padan Aram. We read these words at that time. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family and I will be with you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. Since that time, Jacob returned and he first lived in Sukkot and then in Shechem, which pictures the church age and the millennial reign of Christ. If you were here and you heard that, there was no doubt that's what that's picturing. But he was not directed to go to those places. He simply went there. He is being directed specifically right now. At God's divine direction, he's instructed once again to move to a specific location for a specific purpose. He's to, told to go up to Bethel and dwell there. Bethel is the second stopping place for his grandfather Abraham when he lived in the land and it's about 28 miles south of Shechem. It's not a real far distance. So you have to ask yourself, why would God tell him to go such a close distance away? It would be like God telling one of you, I want you to pick up and move from Sarasota down to Punta Gorda. That's kind of the, a, a similar thing. You think, well, that's not very far away. Would you tell me to do that, Lord? But this place, Bethel, is also the last recorded place that he, he was at before he left the land of Canaan and went up to Mesopotamia. When he was there, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Now, instead of this long title, only the term El, mighty one, is used. This is probably because of the location's name, Bethel, or the house of El. He's told to dwell there and to make an altar there. And God gives him the reason. He says to make an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. This was way back in Genesis 28 after his vision in the night. Jacob woke up and he made this vow. He said, if God will be with me, and that's an important verse right there, and keep me in the way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Here's the second important part. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you gave me, give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Although Jacob built an altar in Shechem, it's now time to build one in Bethel, the house of God. This would be in fulfillment of his vow to the Lord before he left. On to verse two. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with them, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. The standard thought here is that this is speaking about the idols that Rachel had stolen from her father before they left Mesopotamia. They fled from there. She took Laban's uh, idols. These may have been in the camp. They may not have been. But even if they were, this is not the whole scope of what Jacob's talking about. In just a few verses, it's going to mention other things that were included. Jacob had many servants from Mesopotamia, as we've already seen. They probably had their own idols that they brought along. He also acquired all of the women and all of the booty from Shechem, and that would have included many more idols as well. But now, moving at God's direction and to the house of God, they are told to put away the foreign gods. The term here is Elohe Hanechar, which can also be translated the gods of the foreigners. Everything that has been brought into this camp, which could defile the worship of the true God, is to be disposed of. After this, they were to purify themselves change their garments, get ready to meet the Lord. Washing and changing of garments is something that is seen throughout the Bible in anticipation of meeting with God. 
in Exodus chapter 19, it was seen right before the giving of the law. Here's what it says there. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and they washed their clothes. The same concept is seen in the 24th Psalm in preparation for a meeting with the Lord up at the uh, temple. It says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Now I want you to get the image that the temple is a picture of something else. You know, uh, that's on earth. The temple is actually picturing something in heaven. And let me start this Psalm again and think of what Jacob is doing and think of this Psalm. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob. Keep thinking right back to where we're at right now. The generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. And as a third example, almost the exact same words were spoken by Joshua to the people of Israel concerning their obligation to the Lord. They've subdued the land of Canaan after uh, their years of war, after the Exodus. Joshua's an old man. He speaks to the people. Here's what he says. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. Guess what? God is looking for both the externals and the internals. He doesn't want us to just put on nice clothes and go to church and hand out business cards. He says, put away the foreign gods, something external, and incline your heart to the Lord your God. That's something internal. And this is something that every single person has to do actively. It's not a passive action on our part. We have to actively work to purifying ourselves both internally and externally when we come to meet the Lord. Verse three, then... Let us arise and go up to Bethel. After the rite of purification, only then will they arise and go up to the house of God. They have now purged themselves of what is impure, both physically and spiritually. And they've changed into clean clean garments, which are an outward reflection of the inward purity that they were to possess. And this is something that's actually seen in its truest sense in the New Testament faith, which is found in Jesus Christ. From the book of Hebrews chapter 10, See how it mirrors what we're looking at right now. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, the external and the internal when you meet the Lord. Verse three continues, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. This is Jacob's statement acknowledging the vow which was reminded to him by God back in verse one. He was in distress as he departed his home. He was threatened by Esau and he was in distress many times in the ensuing years. But time and time again, we've seen Jacob face a challenge and the Lord is there with him in the trial. The altar is a demonstration of gratitude to the Lord as much as anything else. You have provided as you promised, and here's the altar of my thanks and my devotion to you. Verse four, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. Now in obedience to the patriarch, the people of the camp gave everything which was an idol or a talisman to Jacob. And this included even the earrings which were used in this manner, just as many people use necklaces today in the exact same manner. The great Methodist theologian Adam Clark in his writings describes one of these that he actually owned personally. Here's what he says. Earrings were certainly worn as amulets and charms, first consecrated to some god or formed under some constellation, on which magical characters and images were drawn. A very ancient and beautiful one of this kind brought from Egypt, cut out of a solid piece of cornelian, now lies before me. It is engraved all over with strange characters and images, which prove that it was intended for a talisman or an amulet. And what he's trying to tell us here is that they were using these as as talismans or amulets. They were idols, and we do the same thing. We may have you know, a, a St. Christopher medal. And we think that's going to get us safely across the ocean. 
or we may wear a crystal thinking it's going to give us some type of chi that, you know, protects us divinely or something. And the Bible is trying to tell us in this passage that those things do not help. In fact, they harm. They put a wall between us and God. And these are the type of things that the Lord would ask us to purge from our lives and to bury under that tree. Verse 4 continues, And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. The terebinth tree here is surely the same one which was mentioned uh, back in grandfather Abraham's time. And that's why it's mentioned the way it's mentioned. This is in Genesis 12, verse 6. Just as Abraham entered the land of Canaan, we read these words. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, where he is here, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were with them in the land. And it may seem like a little bit of a diversion to you when I do this. It's not, I assure you. It's to explain to you the name of this tree, Moreh. What does it mean? It means the early rain, as is used in Joel chapter 2, which is speaking of the future millennial reign of Christ. In Israel, there are two rains. There's what we call the early or the former rain. That happens in the fall. And then you have the latter rain, which happens in the springtime. It's based on the harvest season. Okay? And it's speaking of that in this verse from Joel chapter 2. Here's what it says. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain, the more faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And this same word more means teacher also. Both words come from the verb yara. It means to throw or to shoot. So you're making a mark, all right? Another derivation of this exact same word is the word Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. It means instruction. We call it the Pentateuch, all right? Or some people call it the books of Moses. And the name Jerusalem also may have reminded the people of Israel of this particular verb as well. This tree is being tied to what has happened and to what's coming. Our second thought today, God of the house of God. This is verse five. And they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. The sons of Jacob had just killed all of the men of the town of Shechem and taken captive all of the women and all of the goods. Following directly after this, God tells him to move on to Bethel. Not only would the people of Canaan have friends in Shechem, but they would certainly have family members as well. They would have sons that married in to become uh, husbands, and they would have had daughters that married in to become wives. The natural thing for these people to do would be to pursue them and to kill Jacob and his entire clan for what they had done to the people of Shechem. But instead, the Bible says something. It says, Kitat Elohim, a terror from God, came upon the surrounding cities. Whatever this was, whether it was a natural or a superstitious belief of the people, God ensured that Jacob would not be pursued as he traveled south to Bethel. Now, as a bonus to Jacob, we're going to see that he actually retains possession of this land. He's not moving away from it and just giving up his rights to it. In Genesis chapter 37, we're going to see that all of his sons will leave where he finally moves to down in Hebron. They're going to go from Hebron all the way up to this land to pasture their flocks. And then in chapter 48 of Genesis, he's going to dispose of this piece of land by giving it to his son Joseph before he dies. And as a final note on this beautiful piece of land that we're looking at here, it still contained a well that was known as Jacob's well almost 2,000 years later when a man named Jesus sat down next to it with a woman and talked to her in this area. The sites right here that we're talking about, all of them are still there today. For anyone who wants to take a nice and historic visit to the nation of Israel. Verse 6. So Jacob came to Lutz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. Now after these many long years, it's been close to 30 years, Jacob is finally returning to Bethel, the place where he lay sleeping with his head on a stone as a pillow. And he had a vision of the Lord. He was all but alone when he left there the last time. And now he has four wives. He has at least 12 children. He has servants. He has flocks of animals. He has wealth. All of these things. Everything that had been promised was granted by the Lord above the ladder. The angels who ascended and who descended on that ladder attended to him all along. And they divinely protected him throughout all of his travels. This must be the reason for the inclusion of the name of the city which is Lutz, and the term which says in the land of Canaan. 
In other words, when the promise was made, the town's name was Lutz, and he was in the land of promise. Now he's again at the same spot in the land of promise, and the promise is fulfilled. And so it is time for him to fulfill his promise. The area which is named Lutz, indicating a corrupt and perverse people, is now to be formally renamed Bethel, the house of God. Verse 7, and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. By building the altar to God, he is establishing this as God's house. This is what was done, for example, by David when he brought the, bought the uh, property for the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, if you know that story. As soon as he did, he built an altar and he sacrificed to the Lord there. It's also the very first thing that the Babylonian exiles did even before laying the foundation of the temple. They built an altar and they sacrificed to the Lord. We can read about that in Ezra chapter 3. Here's what it says. Then Joshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God to Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. The spot of land is dedicated by the altar. The pillar of promise which was set so long ago has become an altar of fulfillment to the promise. And as an acknowledgement of this, he calls the place El Bethel, God of the house of God. All those years earlier when he named the place Bethel, he said that God would be his God if he took care of him and brought him back safely. Now he is back and God is his God. As Matthew Henry says, and this is an important thought from Matthew Henry, the comfort the saints have in holy ordinances is not so much from Bethel, the house of God, as from El Bethel, the God of the house. The ordinances are empty things if we do not meet with God in them. Now, what is Matthew Henry talking about? He's talking about things like church without religion. He's talking about religion without relationship. And he's talking about deeds with wrong faith. We can go to church all we want, and if God is not in the building, it doesn't do anything. I was in a church just this past month, back in August, and God was not in the house, and it meant absolutely nothing. It was void of any relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that brings you to the second thought, which is religion without relationship. You cannot have a relationship with the God of heaven if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not possible. He is the mediator between the two of us, and he is the one that reconciles us in this manner. And so we have to have church with God, and we have to have the religion with the relationship, and we need to have deeds with correct faith. I bring this example up almost every sermon. People over in Islam go into shopping malls, and they blow themselves up, and they think that they are doing the right thing. That is a deed for God, but it is misdirected faith, and therefore it is wasted faith. Your deeds have to be properly directed. And that means you have to have the relationship first, and then you enter into the deeds as gratitude for the relationship. That's how it works. And there's one more point about this particular verse that I'd like to uh, mention, because we're going to have a church here soon. Worship is not for us. Worship is for God. It's fine to go into a church, and it's fine to enjoy the worship. But if you don't enjoy the worship but God is still glorified, that's the purpose of it. You, you know, I attended a church for many years that had a warbler organ, one of the most horrifying sounds in the world to me. And I did not like the worship, but I loved God, and I loved the fact that he was being glorified through the people's voices, even though I couldn't stand it. And so my heart was geared towards God simply because of the worship that was going on. Some people have to have the worship. And so the worship becomes a form of idolatry in itself, and we cannot allow that to happen. So remember those four precepts, church with God, religion with relationship, and deeds with correct faith, and worship is for God. It's not meant for us. Verse 7 continues, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. This verse, this is one that Sergio and I talked about is one of only a handful, and I mean literally, only five times in the Old Testament where the term God is used with a plural verb. In Hebrew, it says, Kisham niglu elav Elohim. They're the gods something. 
It doesn't say God appeared to him. It does not say that. Your Bible is mistranslated. Why would they do this? This verse, I will tell you, causes all kinds of problems with scholars because there is obviously only one God, not many. But translators do not want to translate this as it appears because then it seems to make no sense. And so your translation, whether you know it or not, does not reflect what the Hebrew text says. This includes, yes, ye old King James Version. It is not correct. I say personally that the plural is correct. It's not talking about God appearing here at all. Rather, the building of the altar and the naming of the place is to affirm that there is only one God. This is why he names the place El Bethel, God of the house of God. He is now fulfilling the very vow which he made so many years earlier. Remember what I told you to pay attention to. If, the God, if God will be with me, then the Lord shall be my God. In other words, by proving yourself faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. All other gods will be removed from me. And this is what the verb niglu, which he uses right here, means. It's used only one other time in the Bible in this form. It's in Jeremiah chapter 13. And there it says in the NASB, in plural, your skirts have been removed. This plural verb, niglu, comes from the root word gala, which means to cover or to remove. If it was that God appeared, as your Bible says, then a different word should have been used. It should have been the word yirah. And that is almost consistent throughout the Old Testament. Many, many times this word yirah is used. In Exodus 3.2, it says, the yirah malach, the angel appeared. In Genesis 12, 7, which is speaking to Abraham, it says, Ve'yirah el, uh, Yahweh el Avram. The Lord appeared to Avram. And guess what? In fact, this word, Yirah, is used in this chapter in verse 1. If you remember, it says, The Lord appeared to Jacob and told him, you know, do this thing. This shows us that it is certainly not speaking about God at all. People have claimed, guess, guess what they claim about this particular verse in order to translate it this way. They'll say, well, the Hebrew's wrong. Well, that's convenient. I believe to a literal translation of the Bible, and I believe that there are no errors in the Bible, except this one little part where a guy used a different verb and he put it in the plural form. No, it doesn't work that way. Or they'll say that it's a scribal error. A scribe has meticulously gone through every single letter of the Old Testament, one book at a time, and he's put it into a, a new scroll because so, the old one is getting worn out and he didn't make any errors except in this one spot and so we're going to mistranslate the bible because he made the error that's very convenient but it doesn't answer anything they make up numerous other excuses as to why this plural verb is used as well but the plain sense of it is that your bible is mistranslated rather jacob was probably as confused about god as most people and thus there was the need for the Lord to appear to him at Bethel. And there was the need for the Lord to prove himself faithful to the request. The gods were removed from Jacob potentially at that time. If you will do these things, then you will be my God. The gods were removed actually when God appeared to him in Shechem in verse 1 and reminded him of the vow. Thus we have the purification of the people and the preparation for the divine meeting in verse 2, and the bearing of the false gods in verse 3. This is exactly what's being relayed here. The Lord is the true God, and Jacob has now acknowledged that by removing the false gods. They were removed from Jacob at Bethel when he fled from the face of his brother Esau in hope. They were removed from Jacob at Shechem in home. This is an explanation which completely covers the use of the plural verb. You see, we have to let the chips fall where they fall and not try to hide otherwise difficult verses that may not fit with what we think we know. Now, having said that, I want you to know that I have not seen one other commentator either touch this verse or if they do, come to this conclusion. They just try to write it off in some way or another. So you're either gonna have to stick with your translation or seek to find out why this plural verb is used. And I suggest that I'm correct in this. There's nothing wrong with the Hebrew text or a proper translation of it, which says the gods were removed. This is what happens. They were removed from the house and they were covered with dirt. Our third and final thought today, Deborah, the honey and the milk.
I got to tell you what, this one verse here, I, I get teary just thinking about it. I, this is the most meaningful verse maybe in the Bible to me after having studied it. I want you to know that before I give you this evaluation. Verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree, so the name of it was called Alon Bahuth. This person is mentioned only here in the Bible by name. And she's the same person that's mentioned one other time, which is in Genesis 24, 59, but her name wasn't used. Here's what it says there. So they sent Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, this person right here, and Abraham's servant and his men. If you missed that sermon and several others, you missed the reason for the inclusion of her in God's word at all. It is extremely rare to be included in the Bible. Of the billions and billions of people that have ever lived on planet Earth, only a few are actually mentioned, and even few are given such incredible note. Very few people's death and burial are recorded, and yet hers is. And even the place is noted, and it's named based on her burial. But never, not once, have I read a commentary explaining why she was included at all. Commentators go no further to, than to explain who she is, but not her importance, nor the reason why God included this one verse about her. Today, you're going to see why. As I showed when she was introduced, she pictures the word of God, the Bible. Deborah means bee. A bee produces honey, but she's also described as a wet nurse. Uh, Rebecca's wet nurse up there in Genesis 24. The Hebrew word is yanak, a woman who suckles children, thus giving milk. Both of these are used to symbolize the word of God in the Bible. A few of many examples of note, I'll give you three. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 26. God's land is the land of the Bible. It's a land of milk and honey. It's called this numerous times. And Peter says this in his second letter to us. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure, pure milk of the word, that you may th grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And guess what? Even in the last book of the Bible, John speaks of the sweetness of God's word. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take it, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Deborah was the one to have suckled Rebecca when she was born. But one might question, why would they send her wet nurse with her when she went to meet Isaac? She's all grown up now. The reason is that she performed this function as her lifetime role. People think a wet nurse must have recently undergone childbirth. This is not true. Suckling itself elicits lactation in a woman. The account of one wet nurse, Judith Waterford, comes from 1831. Listen to her life. On her 81st birthday, she could still produce breast milk. In her prime, she unfailingly, unfailingly produced two quarts of breast milk a day. My grandmother was raised in China in the early 1900s, and she said that this was a very common job for women. Their profession was to be a wet nurse their entire life. And so based on this, and that we previously saw that Deborah went with Jacob to Padanaram, she probably suckled every person born into this family, from Rebekah to Jacob and Esau, all the way through to Joseph and Dinah. This is why she went with Jacob to Mesopotamia, because it was her duty to the family who came from Rebekah. And thus, under this tree called Alan Bahuth, the Oak of Weeping, below Bethel, the entire family who had been suckled by this woman of note wept as the source of their own development and their own lives was laid to rest. What do you think that is picturing? Now that we've looked at the surface details of this story, the cultural and the historical aspects of it, we need to ask ourselves about all eight verses. Why? Why has God included these details? They're interesting, yes, but God must be showing us something. And here is the light. Since Jacob was introduced, we've seen stories continuously unfolding, showing us this broad panorama of what God is doing in history and how it all centers on and points to the work of Jesus Christ. Jacob has left Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, where he had built an altar there previously. 
This was, as we saw a couple sermons back, a picture of the millennial reign of Christ, the final dispensation of man's time on earth, man under the personal reign of Christ. After that was the insert story, which was concerning Dinah. That was a three-part series which pointed to, to the need to avoid legalism and works-based salvation and to rely solely on the grace of Jesus Christ. And this is something that is needed in all ages, including the millennium, and that's why God included that in that particular spot in the Bible. I'm certain of it. But what comes after the millennial reign? The eternal state. We call it heaven. God directs Jacob to leave where he is, Shalem in Shechem, which pictured Jerusalem in the land of Canaan, and to go to Bethel. In chapter 28, we saw that that was a uh, uh, picture of heaven, and again it is now. Jacob left his home. Jesus left his home. Jacob went to Padanaram, the place of elevated ransom. Jesus came to the earth to pay an elevated ransom. Jacob acquired Leah and Rachel. Jesus fulfilled the law and brought us grace. Jacob had his children, picturing the people of Israel and the work of Jesus. The story continued steadily through all of the pictures of these last 25 sermons, each detailing a portion of Jacob's life, and each pictured the steady, unfolding work of Jesus Christ. And now the millennium has come and gone, and there are final words of glory in the last two pages of the book of Revelation, pictured in these eight verses. Jacob instructs his household, and remember, his household pictures everything we've looked at, every picture we've seen, the law, the grace, the church age, the time of Israel, the captivities, the millennium, everything else. He instructs them to put away the foreign gods, to purify yourselves, and to change your garments. All of this is to be found in the Bible, pointing to the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. We can find it in the Old Testament, and we can find it in the New. In Daniel chapter 12, it says this, many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And in Revelation 3, we see a similar concept. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. This process has been going on since the very beginning, and it's going to continue until the very last moment. People abandoning their idols, being purified, and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And this is all pictured in this one verse. Only after this occurs will we travel to Bethel, the house of God, heaven. As it says in Revelation 21, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means any enter in it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. And if you go through the Bible, all three of those terms are used about idols. They defile, they cause an abomination, and they lie. That's exactly what's being pictured here. There at the terebinth tree of Moreh, where the promise was made to Abraham, the people buried their idols. Moreh, as noted, indicated the early rains. And it goes on to say in that passage that they fill the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping. That pictures our lives but it also means teacher, the tree of the teacher who instructs us on who God is. Guess who that is? The idols of the people of all of the ages are buried right there, right up until the end of the millennium, pictured by Jacob's time in the city of Shalem, which pictures Jesus' time in Jerusalem during the millennial reign of Christ. Only after the people are purified, made spotless, and wearing the whitened garments of Christ are they ready for the final stage of their journey. Along the way, God divinely protects his people, pictured by the terror of God upon the people as they traveled. Finally, Jacob comes to Lutz, that is Bethel. Both names are given. As I said, it's important when something is given a name, and when both names are given, you want to know why. So what we have to do is we have to go back to our last visit here and remind you of their meaning and their significance. Lutz comes from a verb which means to turn aside in a negative way, such as turning aside from wisdom or being a twisted person. Lutz is named after a crooked or a perverse generation that lived there. It is the world of fallen man. But the Lord came to the twisted and crooked earth, leaving the glory of the house of God, Bethel, to redeem his people. Lutz is a fruit which start, is very similar to an almond, but it matures differently. 
it starts off sweet and becomes bitter in contrast to the almond which starts off bitter and becomes sweet. Man corrupted the sweet paradise called Eden that God created and it became bitter, lutes. The Lord came to restore what was made bitter by restoring to us access to the house of God, Bethel. This is why both names are given. There in Bethel, picturing the new heavens and the new earth, it says Jacob built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Yes, there is an altar in heaven. Revelation tells us it's so. Jacob calls it this name, El Bethel, God of the house of God, the God of heaven. Notice the difference between the name of this altar and the name of the altar that he gave when he was back in Shechem. I'm going to read you both of them. In Shechem, it was El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. That's in Shechem, which pictures Jer Jerusalem in the millennial reign of Christ. Here it's called El Bethel, God of the house of God. That's Bethel, heaven. The God of Israel is Jesus, El Elohe Israel. He's no less God when he's in heaven, but in eternity, we're going to see something different. We're going to see the fullness of the Godhead, El Bethel. When going over these verses with my friend Sergio, more than a half a year ago, he wrote this, asking this question, why would Jacob name the place again? He already named it in chapter 28, and he was reminded of it in verses one and two. Obviously, Jacob did not try to name the place with the same name again, but was rather pointing out that there is only one God. That was very, very astute of Sergio, I have to tell you what. Can you see why asking the Bible questions is so helpful? Questions help you provide the answers. The reason for the name being given again, after being given so many times, is because of what it pictures, the procession of the Godhead in eternity. And this is something that we will experience personally. Paul tells us right in 1 Corinthians 15, listen to what he says, for he, God, has put all things under his feet, Jesus. But when he says all things are under him, Jesus, it is evident that he, God, who put all things under him, Jesus, is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, God, who put all things under him, Jesus, that God may be all in all. Do you see that picture there? Finally, after this glorious picture of heaven and us in the presence of God, of the house of God, we read this verse, which seems like almost an unnecessary insert. Why is this included? Let me read it again. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of the, it was called Alan Bahuth. Think, why? Why is this there? Deborah is the instruction of God, which has been with man all along, feeding us with delight like honey and sustenance like milk. She'll no longer be needed. The Bible is complete with the word amen at the end of the book of Revelation. The pictures are complete and the story is behind us. Now only eternity awaits, a ceaseless, endless journey into the mind of God and in the light of his glory, unwritten and ready for eternal exploration. Deborah is behind us. The Bible is done. The tree was called Alam Bahuth, the Oak of Weeping. This treasure right here, this glorious, marvelous gift from God, the Holy Bible, will be behind us and buried under the ancient tree of time. And I'll shed two tears that day, I assure you. The first will be a tear of sadness at the passing of one portion of our existence, and the second will be for joy at what lies ahead as we walk in the presence of God and in the splendor of his glory and that of the Lamb of God for all eternity. The Bible never says that there will be no tears in heaven. It doesn't say that. He says It says he will wipe away all our tears. Now in the sermons ahead, more pictures are coming, beautiful pictures, more accounts of God's love for the people of the world. But in erecting and in naming this altar, we can look back on the past history, seeing all that's been accomplished, and we can look into the future with the certainty of what lies ahead. We can see the greatness of the plan that God has laid out for all of his people, Jew and Gentile alike, and we can hail him for his marvelous deeds. Hallelujah, mission accomplished. You've never made a commitment 
to this wonderful God who has the entire span of eternity settled in his mind already, please let me explain to you real quickly what you need to know so that you too can walk on these eternal streets of gold. We are fallen sons of Adam. Every picture that we've seen of Jacob is pointed to that and everything that the Bible speaks of tells us that. We are fallen sons of Adam and we are without hope in a dark world. But Jesus Christ, the light of the world, entered into this stream of humanity, being born of a woman and being born of the Holy Spirit. And so he didn't inherit Adam's sin. And he lived perfectly under the law which God gave, which nobody could fulfill but him. And then he gave that perfect life up as a sacrifice of atonement for the sins that you and I were born into and which we committed. And he asks us to simply put our faith in what he did and to say, yes, I believe what Jesus Christ is, has done is all sufficient for getting me back to God, back to Bethel, as we've seen in this glorious picture today. It, that is what it's all about. It is the heart of God and it is the mind of God being revealed to us in the life of this simple man. I got to tell you what, please, if you've never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, make today that day. I have three closing verses for you today, something I've never done before. I just... I couldn't decide on one, so I'm giving you three. The first is from Hebrews chapter 11. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country, pictured by Bethel. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, Bethel. And then in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 21, it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and he shall be their people God himself will be with them and be their God. Wonderful stuff. Glorious promise from God. And finally, I'll end up with the 119th Psalm, a portion of which I read every single day of my life is the very first thing I do. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Thank you, Lord, for your beautiful word. Thank you for your exalted, glorious, beautiful word. Next week, we're going to look at Genesis 35, verses 9 through 15. That's Israel's land promise. We're into new pictures that are coming. That'll be our 88th Genesis sermon. And I have a poem for you today as I do every single day. But uh, before I give it to you, I'd like to remind you as I do each week that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right, our poem today, another thing I've never done before. I had to give it two titles. The Bible means so much to me. God the house of God, subtitled The Burial of Deborah. Then God said to Jacob with a confirming nod, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there too, and make an altar there. Make it to God, yes, to God who appeared to you. When you fled from the face of Esau, your brother, from the face of him and not another. And Jacob said to his household, not just a few, and to all who were with him, all of those, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered in the day of my distress so well, and has been with me in the way which I have trod. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods acquired over the years, which were in their hands, and the earrings, which were in their ears, idols procured from foreign peoples and foreign lands. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree there, which was by Shechem, their power he did forswear. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon all the cities that were all around, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob as he trod on his journey to Bethel to that sacred spot of ground. So Jacob came to Lutz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him as well, they arrived at the place to which they had been, Amon. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God appeared to him. When he fled from his brother, he fled like a gazelle. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel. Under the terebinth tree, her graveside, so it was named Alan Bahuth, as the account does tell. The ordinary life of a man chosen by God has been used to tell us of glories of head ahead and of wonders in which we gaze upon awed stories of Jesus, our God, our King, our head. At the fall of man in the Garden of Eden and all ages ahead, the plan has been known to our glorious Lord. In another garden, we were restored when Jesus bled. The story is told to us in his precious word. It reveals heaven's riches awaiting each of us who put our trust in God's glorious provision. Trusting alone in the work of Jesus will carry us to the place of beatific vision. 
And so to our King we sing hallelujah and praise as we live our lives for him all of our days. Yes, hallelujah and amen. Oh God, thank you for these marvelous pictures which show us the whole panorama of the glory of what you have done for the people of the world. We've all so shamefully turned our back on you and we've done so much wickedness. Our minds are filled with it, our hearts are, are filled with evil, and yet you look into them and you say, this one is worth redeeming, and you send your son, and you allow us the choice of calling on him. And what a glorious God to do such things for us. Oh God, I pray that each person here will never lose the fire in their heart and in their soul of the magnitude of the beauty of the majesty of our Lord and Savior Jesus in this beautiful word you've given us which shows us all of these things. Yes, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.